Welcome to Powell Presbyterian Church. As far as what's going on around here this week, uh, everything will be normal. The Monday morning Bible study, the Wednesday morning Bible study, and youth will all be uh, meeting this week as usual. Also this morning uh, here uh, at Powell, we'll, we will be having uh, the Lord's Supper together, and so it might look at the end of the sermon, it might look a little different online than it normally does. Uh, but as uh, we go through this sermon, you'll notice it's kind of geared a little bit towards the Lord's Supper uh, that we will be uh, sharing afterwards. And I do invite you to uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And we've come to the end. We're going to read the last few verses here, verses 20 through 25. And uh, it'll, it's the benediction, basically. And the benediction and then a, a few personal words at the end. And uh, the benediction, uh, quite often when we go through books of the Bible, we kind of just pass by the benediction fairly quickly. And I, I mentioned one at the end of every service. Uh, we have a benediction that I take from Scripture. Uh, but it's good to look at them every now and then and really uh, see uh, what this blessing from God is about. And, and there's some teaching. A lot of the teaching from throughout Hebrews gets summarized in this benediction that he gives us at the end. And it's, it's a great... A uh, great few sentences here. So let me read. We're going to, it might sound a little weird because I'm, uh, it sounds like I'm ending it, but actually we're just beginning this uh, with the benediction. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly that you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that you give us. We ask that you bless this time now as we look at this great benediction uh, that you give us and that we may be strengthened uh, in your truth and in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a word I've used a couple of times and I define it, but I'll, I'll define it again. Uh, the word amanuensis. And uh, it, what that is is it a person employed to write, I'm just reading the definition, a person employed to write or type what another dictates or to copy what has been written by another. Amanuensis. And uh, every now and then, if you hang around in religious circles, you'll hear that word because uh, Paul uses an amanuensis uh, for pretty much all of his letters. And, and we get this idea that the writer of Hebrews has used one 
as well. You could uh, call the person uh, a secretary if you want or a scribe if you want, um, but this message has been uh, most likely dictated and then uh, at the end, at the very end, the person who's doing the dictating uh, will write in his own hand. We see that with Paul. He says, see, I'm writing in my own hand this, these last couple of sentences. And we get that idea that that's happening here in Hebrews too. If you notice, uh, beginning at verse 22, uh, when he writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, uh, this is probably, he has picked up the pen and he's writing this himself that he he ended his dictation with to whom be glory forever and ever amen and now he's going to write his own and, and this is his own words and, and this is somewhat of a of a testimony that he's really the one who wrote this or who dictated it if you will and so uh, we're going to start with that actually this the last few verses and starting at verse 22 where uh, he writes pretty much or, or probably with his own hand, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. And uh, I love how he writes that, bear, bear with me, bear with my words here. Uh, the King James Version, I believe, uses the word suffer. Suffer with me a little while. Um, endure with me. And, and because you really need to know this. And, and I know that feeling of sometimes you're like, just, just hang with me. I, we've all had that conversation. You're like, just bear with me. But you really needed to, to hear uh, what it is that I'm saying. And that's what our, our writer here, as he gives us this exhortation, um, it, it's this uh, comfort, encouragement that he's giving us. Uh, and he said, you, you need this. Remember, the original readers are thinking about falling away. They're thinking about giving up Christ as they have known him. And so, he said, bear with me here. And I, I'm writing to you, uh, as he writes here in verse 22, I've written to you briefly. And I love that word, briefly. Uh, because I thought, well, how brief is this? And I actually did this uh, this week in my office. I said, how long would it take me to read as though I were speaking Hebrews? Uh, because it's written that way, that uh, he, it's written so that it will be spoken in a church, or, and probably in several churches. But, so I thought, well, how long is this sermon? It's basically a sermon. So I started from the beginning, and I was reading out loud as though I was reading to people. It takes about an hour, just a little bit under an hour as, as I read it, and, and that's brief. Earlier this week, we started Deuteronomy in our Wednesday morning Bible study, and we learned that that's basically a five-hour sermon. And so I thought, I have to change my standards here. <laughs> if an hour is brief, well, I've got to go at least an hour, and I got up to five hours for a good sermon. But I'm no Moses, so I'll, I won't go to the five hours. But stick with me briefly, and I love that uh, briefly here, because it does take, like I said, just a tick under an hour if you were to read this to someone. But uh, he, he writes this, and then he said, you should know uh, that our brother Timothy has been released. And, and Timothy, this is most likely the same Timothy that we read elsewhere in the New Testament. And uh, he's been in prison, and now he's, he's released. 
And I love how he says, well, and, and he's going to come with me. If, if he gets here in time, then he's going to come with me when I come to see you. It's like Timothy has been released from prison, but no rest for the weary. He's back on the road and he's preaching again. It's this uh, great uh, example of enduring and persevering. And, well, I was in jail for a while. I'm out. You know what? I'm going to preach Christ again. And they might throw me in jail again, but what does Timothy care? And, and apparently he's being a, somewhat volunteered here. I don't know that this guy has actually talked to Timothy yet, but he said, nah, I'll talk to Timothy. He's coming with, uh, whether he wants to or not. Uh, but Timothy's been released. And then he, he says, greet all your leaders and, and the saints. Uh, once again, the, the idea of leaders comes up again, and, and the saints, and this is encouraging because we can see that they haven't fallen away yet. He's encouraging them, and, and they haven't fallen away. The, the, the saints are still there. And then those who come from Italy send you greetings, and then his very own uh, little, tiny little benediction there, grace be with all of you. And, and that's probably in his very own handwriting as a personal notes. And, and he ends it with that little mini benediction, if you will. But that takes me back to the benediction that uh, he gives for the letter. The benediction that we find in verses uh, 20 uh, and 21. And a benediction is a, a blessing from God. And as I mentioned, a lot of his teaching uh, is, is summarized almost in this benediction. And we'll just take it line by line, basically. He said, now may the God of peace, and right there we have to stop. The God of peace. That phrase is used five times in the New Testament. And when he talks about the peace here, he's talking about the peace that comes through the gospel. This reestablishment of creator and creature. How, because of sin, we were alienated from God, but now I have been reconciled. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, uh, through Christ, through him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross that peace that comes because of what Christ did on the cross. And we who were enemies, basically, have now been reconciled with God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. It, it passes all understanding. This is peace in the deepest and fullest sense because of this complete forgiveness we have through Christ. This complete acceptance we have from God and it's found only in God and only because of what Christ has done. The world can't understand it. It is a peace that is so deep and so true and so real. It's a gift from God and it's all of God. And may this God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And, and again, we pause here, bringing again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The, the proof 
of, of our acceptance, if you will. The, the proof that we have been forgiven is what Christ has done and that he was raised again. Death doesn't have the final word in anything. Christ has the final word. The writer has been writing about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and, and all of those old covenant sacrifices, those bulls and goats and everything else, they're still dead. Once they were killed, they never came back to life. They were dead and are still dead. And in fact, in, in chapter 10, he writes, because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and, and goats to take away the sins of the world, we needed a perfect sacrifice. And we know we have the perfect sacrifice because though he died, he was raised again. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. He died for our sins and raised for our justification. God accepted the sacrifice, raised him up again, and we are justified because of the great shepherd of the sheep as we continue on in this benediction. The great shepherd of the sheep. And once again, this is a, 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 an idea that he has been hitting at uh, throughout the book of Hebrews. All the other shepherds, if you will, they paled in comparison. The Levite priests, Moses, Abraham, some great, great people there. But they all paled in comparison to the great shepherd of the sheep. John uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and then he talks about how the hired hand will flee and then he writes, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And later on he says, I, I, this charge I have received from my father and then he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's great words of comfort and encouragement. They know my voice. They, they know my words and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The great shepherd, there is none more powerful. And so we are secure in Christ's forgiveness, never to be snatched out of his hand by the blood of the eternal covenant as I continue on with the benediction in verse 20. And this eternal covenant was an idea that was brought up in the Old Testament uh, Ezekiel is one of the places that we read about it. In Ezekiel 37, God is saying, I will, make my, um, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, and we can read about it in Jeremiah and Isaiah, and actually the author of Hebrews has quoted some of the Old Testament ideas about this eternal covenant in, in Hebrews 8. Uh, he talks about how this new covenant will be eternal. Back in, in chapter 5, verse 9, he talked about uh, the source of eternal salvation. We'll never be snatched out of the hand of the great shepherd and we'll be with him for an eternity. 
by the blood of the covenant. And here's where I want to go back a little bit to earlier in the chapter. When I was going through verses 10 through 12, I mentioned there's, there's a couple different ideas that the writer is talking about. And I, I picked up on the idea of Jesus suffering outside the camp and, and we should go with Jesus outside the camp. But there's another idea that he was getting at there. And I want to go back and pick that idea up this morning when we talk about the blood of the covenant. And what he's talking about in, in earlier in this chapter, uh, starting at verse 10, when he mentions, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And basically he's talking about the Day of Atonement. And he's talked about the Day of Atonement uh, earlier in, in Hebrews, but you can find the, all the details of the Day of Atonement in uh, Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, but basically, uh, for our purposes, when the sacrifice was burned, uh, it was burned outside the city. And, and the whole thing, they took the blood and sprinkled the blood, but then they took the, the animal outside and they burned it, and the priest could not eat any of the sin offering, it was, it was burned. The Levitical priests, and I'm quoting here, the Levitical priests have no right to eat of their sin offerings. But, and I'm still quoting, we Christians who together constitute a holy priesthood, and he's getting that from 1 Peter chapter 2, we enjoy the privilege of partaking of Christ's sacrifice, which is the true and perfect sacrifice for sin. See, the priests in that old covenant, in that first covenant that it gets called, they, could never, they couldn't eat the sin offering. That had to be burned outside the camp. But this holy priesthood now, we, we can eat from the altar. They, they couldn't eat. We, we have Christ's perfect sacrifice. Theirs was a ceremonial and external. As we've been going through Hebrews, that's one of the ideas that the author was getting at. There was always a point where he had to stop. Okay, you can come so far, and now you have to stop. Now you can come a little farther, but now you have to stop. And, and there was always a point of stopping, and even the, the most holy place, a, a priest could go once a year in there, uh, and, and it was the, the scapegoat that would take a, a, the signifying, taking the sins out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And, but, but the sacrifice, the priest couldn't eat that. Even there, there was a boundary. You can't eat that. It was ceremonial, it was external, but the sacrifice in which we partake is, is spiritual. It, it purifies us inwardly from all sin. Uh, back in chapter 9, the author was writing that, that the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, it couldn't, it couldn't take care of the conscience of the worshiper, but our true sacrifice is inward and spiritual. Theirs was merely a physical representation, if you will. But our eating when we come to the Lord's table is a spiritual reality. God is, is working in us. And under the old covenant, the eating was limited. But in this 
new covenant that Christ brought in when he brought the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant he would tell his disciples. Ours is total and un, unrestricted. When you think about it, and then this is... Uh, this is something we, we sometimes don't think about. Uh, but let me quote John Brown. He is a theologian from the 1800s, and so he uses a couple of strange words. But uh, John Brown, uh, if I can quote him, writes this, that we are permitted to feast on the whole sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We not only eat his flesh, but we do what none of the priests durst do with regard to any of the sacrifices, we drink his blood. We enjoy the full measure of benefit which his sacrifice was designed to secure. We are allowed to feed freely upon the highest and holiest of all sacrifices. Our reconciliation with God is complete. Our fellowship with him is intimate and delightful. And you almost have to wonder about the disciples when they're sitting there and Jesus is instituting the new covenant. He says, here's, here's the new covenant and here's, here's the, the bread. Here's, here's my flesh. Take and, and eat. And they would have thought, yeah, okay, the old covenant priests, they would eat of sacrifices. But did they know that Christ was the sin, a, a sin offering? He was going to be on the cross for our sins because even the priests couldn't do that. But they really had to be astounded when Jesus said, now here's the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink. Excuse me. <coughs> so take and drink. And they would have been astounded. Priests were never to do that. Here is something unprecedented. But it shows what Christ was getting at. We have total forgiveness, total acceptance. As, as uh, it's written, our fellowship, intimate and, dis and delightful. Our reconciliation with God is complete. And so our writer writes this by the blood of the eternal covenant. And then, then we get a little bit of a charge in there. And now may the God of peace, and jump to verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Equip you with everything good. Because we have salvation. That was our biggest problem. That's the biggest problem of all mankind. We offended God and we need to be accepted by him. You have that. So now may he equip you with everything Good And uh, there's, if you were to take the, the Greek and just word for word, it would say, make you perfect in all goodness. And I kind of like that translation. Make you perfect in all goodness. We are not only new people with new hearts, but also we are to do the works that spring from this new nature. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. We now have God in us with his spirit. Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, uh, I, I love how he writes this because he kind of plays with the words a little bit. He writes, This is the will of God 
that we should will what God wills. For otherwise, we have no good will, but God's will is our good. And he's kind of tossing some ideas around there, but I like that idea. The will of God is that we should do what God wills. And we have no good without God, but God's will is our good. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that we should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Back uh, earlier uh, in, in Hebrews, and in fact, even in this passage, it talks about pleasing, doing what's pleasing in his sight. Walking in a manner worthy because we have everything we need. We have forgiveness and we have God's spirit working in us. The Puritan Thomas Manton writes, it is a well-tempered religion that beginneth and endeth in God. Man-pleasing is the hypocrite's religion, but God-pleasing is sincere and true religion. And our author says, walk in these ways. May the God of peace who has provided everything for you equip you that you can walk like that. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 24, the author had told us to stir up one another to love and to good works. And here he stirs us up again. And it's all to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all made possible by Christ. And it's to the glory of Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, we live in a world uh, where brief means seconds. We don't often think deeply about things. You know, whatever, I, I'll like this and move on to the next thing I see on my computer screen or my phone and, and move on. And, we, and that's just kind of how we go. Uh, and, and everything is truly, really brief. But let's, with the author here, let's, let's bear with him for a while in his word of exhortation and think deeply about what he's telling us here. And let's remember the importance of taking this time with God and for God that we can learn his truth, his deep truth, because this is what equips us. This is what gives us hope. This is where our salvation is. And this really is what defines us that we've been reconciled with God because of Christ. And that we have this relationship that is, that is delightful and intimate. And Jesus gives us full access. More than the Levite priest said. He said you have complete access to God and his acceptance and forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have these words of encouragement. Help us 
to take the time to think deeply about your truth, about what it means to be accepted and forgiven, about this eternal covenant in the blood of Jesus, about how far away we were from you because of our sin, but how intimate we are with you now because of what Christ has done, that your Spirit works in us. Equip us, Heavenly Father, to walk in your truth, to do your will, conform our thoughts and our hearts and our wills to those things that are pleasing to you. We thank you and we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then, before we take the Lord's Supper, uh, we will uh, say goodbye to our Facebook friends. And... Uh, And then let me uh, step down here. Whoops. As... You know what? That's just going to fall on the floor. Let me step down here to where this is. And once again, uh, hopefully if, if you didn't, if someone does not have a cup, uh, let me know. And I'll be glad. I have a few up here that I'll be glad to give to someone. But I want to come down here because we're all... We're all here uh, on the same level, if you will. We're all accepting what it is that God uh, has done for us. And again, I just uh, want to ponder a few moments what the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus said, here, here's my body. Here, here is the sacrifice. Here's the offering for your sin. And maybe they didn't know quite at the time. I'm sure it astounded them later on when, they, when it was revealed to them what had happened. But to think that they can eat on that sacrifice because of what Jesus is doing. The, the priests couldn't. But we have fullness in Christ. And as I said, just how amazed they must have been when Christ said, now here's the blood, here's my blood of the covenant. Drink this. Because that was something they hadn't even thought of before. That was completely unrestricted. But what Jesus is doing in this act is he's, he's throwing open the doors and he's saying, I have complete forgiveness for you. If you will come to me, there are no longer any barriers between us and God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. And it must have stunned the disciples. And even now when we think about it, it's a little overwhelming. But it's the truth that God wants us to celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper. So as we do this, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do recognize we are sinners and that you are holy and righteous and that we have 
that holiness and that righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. And so as we take this Lord's Supper together, we ask that you will strengthen us in your truth, that you will encourage our faith as we do this, that as we eat and drink, we will do it to our spiritual nourishment being built up in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as I mentioned, I'm going to give you some time here as, as we go through this, so don't feel like you're in any hurry. But the words from Matthew, after as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then Matthew continues, and he writes, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink. Then Matthew ends that part of the passage by saying, quoting Jesus, saying, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we get this picture of Jesus waiting to have that meal with us. I'm not going to eat till you're with me. I'm not going to do this again till you're with me. He tells us to do this as we meet, that we can remember him. And so we do. And we're also reminded that he's coming again to bring his children, to bring us to him, where he will eat and drink with us. Unrestricted delightful, I love that word, 
and for an eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Supper that you give us, that you nourish us and build us up, that you give us this spiritual reality of what Christ has done and show us again just your unrestricted love towards us who are in Christ. We ask again that you strengthen us, that we may do your will, those things that are pleasing in your sight, and that we, as your body, will be unified, that there will be peace among the saints, and that we will be effective in your world. We love you for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, if you will stand, and you can spread out a little bit, we will sing the doxology.